Welcome to Facilitating Voices, an outlet podcast. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Haley Crow, and I'm your host, Claire Hellingson. On this show, we discuss difficult topics surrounding mental health, social justice issues, equity, and more. Some weeks, we listen to social workers, community members, and other passionate human service providers, and other weeks, you might hear someone's personal story about their journey to healing. Ahead on today's episode, Haley and I will be discussing adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs. We'll dive into the history of adverse childhood experiences, some statistics, what the impacts of ACEs look like, share some current events, and then resources. All of that ahead, but first let's take a quick commercial break to hear from another show here at the Chatter Network. Do you like movies? Of course you do. Do you love movies? Well, so do we. How's it? I'm Alex McCauley, host of Excuse the Intermission, a discussion show surrounding movies. Join me and my co-hosts Max Fosberg and Grant Colombini each week as we conversate about films from the past, the present, and the future through fun and engaging podcast formats like movie drafts, Hall of Fame lists, tournament brackets, and film reviews. So whether it's the newest blockbuster or a resurgent black and white cult favorite, you can count on us to keep you in the know on all things movie related. Excuse the Intermission is a part of the Chatter Network. Okay, so we're back. So Claire, you're going to take us through the history of ACEs. I know this is something you're super passionate about. You did a lot of your research in undergrad and in grad school about this. So Mm -hmm. take us through. Yeah. So I feel like the best way to think about the history of ACEs, at least in my experience, is to start with Dr. Nadine Burke Harris. And I think I've talked about her before briefly. Um, But so... Dr. Nadine Burke Harris um, is a pediatrician, and she did her. She was from California, um, and in 2007, she opened the Bayview Child Health Center um, in the neighborhood of Bayview, San Francisco, which was um, a pretty underserved area. And so she was trying to address health disparities there. And so, during her work, um, she and this is all from her book, The Deepest Well, by the way. Um, and so. In this book that she has written, The Deepest Well, she reflects like on her work at Bayview, uh, mm-hmm. at the Bayview Child Health Center and kind of what she encountered. Um, and so she talks about how she like routinely encountered patients that from a medical standpoint were difficult to treat because their symptoms didn't align with the reasons they were referred there. Mm-hmm. Um, and she routinely struggled to like make a confident diagnosis. And so, um, for example, one of these patients, um, we'll call him Diego as a pseudonym, Um, he was referred to her clinic by his school nurse for ADHD. Um, and during his appointment, Dr. Burke Harris noticed dried swelled patches of eczema on his elbows. She heard wheezing when she listened to his lungs. Um, and when she took his height on the growth chart, he was also at the 50th percentile for height for a four-year-old. Um, but he was seven years old. Mm. So she, Dr. Burke Harris consulted Diego's mom, we'll call her Rosa, And when she asked about Diego's behavior, um, Rosa explained that three years ago, Diego was sexually abused by a family uh, family friend who had been living with them in attempts for the family to lower rent costs. Um, Yeah, because he had been referred because of behavior at school, right? Right. So the nurse was like, oh, he must have ADHD. Um, And so... Like, since he was sexually abused, um, Rosa, his mom, said that his behavior had changed. Um, And so... Like, when Dr. Burke Harris found that out, like, of course it was concerning, but she didn't really know how to still, like, fit that in with right. uh, um, the physical exam or, like, how that medically was relevant. Um, so she just ended up kind of diagnosing Diego with asthma, eczema, and growth failure. 
Um, but over time, Dr. Burke Harris started to see patients a lot like Diego, where like the conditions were kind of puzzling, like children were entering middle school with depression, um, wow, infants, yeah, infants with invasive rashes, children unable to grow, and they were mostly accompanied by stories of trauma and adversity. Um, in the first year of her practice, Dr. Burke Harris saw about a thousand patients, and she diagnosed two of them with autoimmune hepatitis, which is an extremely rare autoimmune disease that typically affects fewer than three children per 100,000. Um, and both cases coincided with significant histories of adversity. So um, in her book, The Deepest Well, Dr. Burke Harris like reflects on all these cases that she had. There's a lot more than just Diego, the one we talked about. And so eventually she comes across this study that had occurred about a decade before um, that explained a lot of what was going on and what she was seeing at Bayview. So in the late 1990s, like 95 through 97, doctors Vincent Felitti and Robert Anda teamed up with Kaiser Permanente, and they conducted a study that's now referred to as the first ever adverse childhood experience, or ACEs study. Um, and so the way that they kind of conducted this study is that adults who visited the Kaiser Permanente clinics um, com and had completed a standard medical evaluation, they received questionnaires about adverse experiences that they may or may not have had as children. So Felitti and Anda organized ACEs into these categories, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical or emotional neglect, parental mental illness, substance abuse, parental incarceration, parental separation or divorce, and domestic violence. So for every question that participants marked yes to, that was one point on their ACE score. So they were asked if they had experienced any of those things. If they said yes to any of those things, they got one point. So responses to these seven categories of ACEs were then compared to measures of adult risk behavior, health status, and disease. What they were trying to find was, you know, do these early experiences that we have as children have any sort of impact on what mm -hmm. we see later down the line when it comes to health, behavior, disease, things like that. Right. So the results of the questionnaire showed that, firstly, ACEs are incredibly common. Um, at that time, 67% of adults reported at least one ACE. 12.6%, um, or one in eight people, reported four or more ACEs. The study also revealed a dose-response relationship between ACEs and health outcomes, meaning the higher your ACE score or the more adverse childhood experiences you had, the worse your health outcomes tended to be. Um, and then a person with a score of four or more um, they were, like, associated with a lot of health conditions. Their relative risk of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, um, was two and a half times that of somebody with an ACE score of zero. For hepatitis, it was also two and a half times the risk. For depression, four times at risk, more at, four times more at risk? How would you phrase that? Four times more at risk. Right? Yeah. That sounds... Good. You guys know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and then for suicide, for suicidality, it was 12 times. Wow. So they were 12 times more likely to experience suicidality than somebody who um, did not have an ACE score of four or more, which is, that's staggering. Um, and then those with seven or more ACEs have triple the risk of lung cancer, um, and they are two and a half times more likely to develop ischemic heart disease, which is also one of the top killers in the United States. So that's what they found from this ACE study, um, which obviously is pretty, I'm, I don't, can't even think of the word, like it's very significant to healthcare, but also just to like public health. Right. Um, and so, yeah, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris was kind of like a pioneer in first like 
acknowledging this, like having kiddos come into her clinic and be like, what's going on? Why do they have all these weird, well, I don't want to say weird, but um, kind of like... Unusual or... Exactly. Unusual or, or difficult to explain conditions. That, for like, their age was re- really exactly. right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then also how do we apply that in the healthcare setting? Mm-hmm. Like she was really a pivotal person in going, like once she had come across this study, um, she went on to say like, how do we apply this right, right. in a pediatric healthcare setting? Um, and so she really helped pave the way. And I think she's, if she's not now, she was the Surgeon General of California. So that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so then in 2009, if we, if we fast forward a little bit, there's uh, the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System, or the BRFSS, um, is now utilized in 48 states plus the District of Columbia to collect health and risk factor data from adults. And this is a, um, a way of measuring kind of ACEs prevalence in the states now, um, and they have adults fill these out. So that's kind of what's come from this study and I think more now you can probably speak to this too Haley like it's become a lot more prevalent of just talking about trauma-informed care right ACEs are kind of commonplace in when we talk about like in healthcare, mental health um and like discussing how to apply this knowledge which we'll we'll get more into like what it looks like and what the statistics are but really before this study was done um and they came out with their paper in 1998 like there wasn't a whole lot of acknowledgement about mm-hmm. the ways that um, adversity and trauma when you're young affect you later down the line. Right. And even I wish more we were seeing it in education yeah. um, than just, you know, like one training over the course of your entire I know. education. But I think um, like from a school social work lens, we're seeing it more and more and um, being integrated and mm-hmm. school social workers being allowed the space to say, you know, like, okay, your student is having all these behavioral problems or they're having, you know, your student's out sick all the time, all these different things. Um, and being able to, you know, talk to teachers and say like, okay, well, you know, have you thought about if you, even if you just like know these things about the kids, like Mm -hmm. a lot of times, you know, right off the bat, at least a good idea of what their A score is without having them do an A score test, right? Like you might know that information. And so I think, I think, we know so much about ACEs now in 2021, even mm-hmm. from 97, 2006, right? These two different kind of pivotal times when these were, mm-hmm. these studies were happening. Um, and I think, unfortunately, COVID has really kind of been like the driver of yeah. bringing this really to the forefront because, mm-hmm. you know, even though we've known this for so long now, how it gets applied in education or in um even other settings, because, you know, what we're talking about, right, we're talking about young people that have come in and we look at A scores, right, from, you know, zero to 18, mm-hmm. essentially. But then what that means, though, is that there's all these adults, yeah. all these adults who are walking around yes. who have high A scores or any A score. And, you know, what what that means for, you know, social workers who work with older adults or, you know, mm-hmm. even not older adults, just adults, yeah. um, is are we still, like, something we have to, like, always think about, even if you're looking at an adult, like, thinking about, like, what, you know, what was your A score? And obviously, A scores, um, we'll go over this a little bit, you know, they're not all-encompassing. Right. Um, and, you know, I think further research has come out about that. 
but it is really important knowledge to have and just knowing that not not only does it affect your mental health i think this is the the key piece of the a studies mm-hmm. like yes having a high a score um there are such direct links to your mental health which is right medical mm-hmm. um and i think sometimes we like forget about that but but also like actual health conditions right like right 12 physical health conditions physical health conditions yes. you know yes four times more likely to have copd two mm-hmm. and a half times um oh a person with four or more excuse me um is two and a half times as likely to have copd right like that mm-hmm. is that's huge statistics so yeah um so that's the history we will dive right into statistics too and so what that will look like those statistics are just wild, right? I mean, they the numbers are huge, and yeah. it, it encompasses so many people. Yeah. Um, so if we look even deeper into statistics, I started by um, going on the CDC website. Um, they have a ton of information about ACEs. And so what, one of the things that the CDC states is that approximately 61% of adults surveyed across 25 states reported they had experienced at least one type of ACE. And nearly one in six reported they had experienced four or more types of ACEs. And so if we think about what Claire had been talking about, experiencing one ACE has health risks in itself. Yeah. But the statistics skyrocket if you've experienced four or more. Yes. And so one in six, that is so, it's just so many people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so due to the ACEs link to health and inca- health conditions, preventing them could clearly reduce these cases um, of different adverse health risks. Yes. Okay. I'm like... Because of the dose-response relationship. So, like, the more ACEs you have, the more likely you are to have um, some sort of negative health outcome. So, obviously, the goal would be to reduce the ACEs to then reduce the the negative health outcomes. Right. Um, and so the CDC also states that up to 1.9 million cases of heart disease and 21 million cases of depression could have potentially been avoided by preventing ACEs. Wow. So I'm not going to dive into ACE prevention right now because we are going to talk about it later, but just kind of keep that thought in your head as we continue to dive into this. Mm-hmm. So it's also important to look at how intersectionality impacts the risk of ACEs. Women and several racial or ethnic minority groups were at a greater risk for having four more types of ACEs. And so then research also supports that ACEs can have long-term negative effects, not only on health, but also well-being, life opportunities, um, including education and job potential. So really, right, if we're looking at this from a holistic perspective, Mm -hmm. these negative things can impact all different parts of your life, right? If you have have health issues, um, problems, right? If you have COPD or if you have major depressive disorder, like that is going to in turn affect different opportunities in your life. Mm -hmm. And so while we're talking about the negative, um, impacts, they also can be lasting, right? So this isn't, oftentimes it's not just, you know, if you have ACEs, you are more likely to get a case of the cold. Yeah. Um, their lasting negative effects on health, well-being, and life opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so these experiences can increase also the risk of injury, sexually transmitted infections, Mm -hmm. maternal and child health problems, including teen pregnancy, pregnancy complications, and fetal death. 
It also has higher rates of being involved in sex trafficking, a wide range of chronic diseases, which Mm -hmm. Claire touched a lot on, and leading causes of death such as cancer, diabetes, heart disease, and suicide. Mm -hmm. So, right, this is kind of scary information, right, to know that if you have four more ACEs, you're at risk of all these different things. Yeah. Um, But there are also other factors um, that we have to talk about when we're talking about ACEs and what those are, are social determinants of health. And so social determinants of health, such as living in under-resourced or racially segregated neighborhoods, frequently moving, food insecurity, all of these things can cause toxic stress. Mm -hmm. And so what toxic stress is, is extended or prolonged stress, right? Extended or prolonged experiences and exposures to trauma, to different things that are stressful. Um, When we have chronic and toxic stress um, exposures, this can change brain development and affect attention, decision-making, learning, and responses to stress. And so if you think about Diego um, and his experiences, right, with <clears throat> ACEs, his, they were thinking he had ADHD, right? And so if we know about ADHD, that typically is either attention or inattention, um, mm-hmm. all of these different factors, but really that also can show, right, as as exposures to trauma, right? And so it's hard sometimes to look at, especially ADHD is a great example of this, right? Because a lot of um, complex PTSD symptoms also look similar Mm -hmm. and mirror um, ADHD. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about our biology and the neurobiology of all of this, if you are, Diego was seven? Yes. Diego was seven, right? And so your brain is developing so much between birth Rapidly. Rapidly developing, right, between birth and four, and then even more, right, as you go on. And if you're experiencing these chronic stress, these chronic stressors while your brain is developing, your brain can develop wrong. And and wrong as in how it typically should, like how your neurobiology should typically respond. And so as right. you are experiencing these negative stressors, as a young child. That's why ACEs are so important to think about because it's not just, you know, experiencing these things and then you just all of a sudden have these yeah. like, increased health outcomes. Like there is yeah. a reason, there's a link. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with that, children growing up with toxic stress may also have difficulty forming healthy and stable relationships. They may have unstable work histories as adults and be passed on to their own children. Some children may face further exposure to chronic, chronic stress Um, from historical and ongoing traumas due to systemic racism or the impacts of poverty resulting from limited education and um, educational and economic opportunities. Mm -hmm. So I also want to talk about, you know, we've talked a lot about ACEs, but there's also resiliency factors that are really important here that can help to outweigh Mm -hmm. um, ACE, ACE scores, right? So we know that if you have one consistent caring adult in your life, the impacts that can have on on a child. And so now there are a lot of different, um, you can do the ACE test, right? Anyone could go online and do the ACE test. Um, but you also can do like a resiliency test and a pr- protective factors test. So I don't want this to be... It's Im- <laughs> yeah, it's important information. Yeah. Um, and I want, we want to bring awareness to this. But also... Um, I, I want to be careful that 
as we're explaining this, like if you're an educator or you're someone that maybe this is new to you, that we're not looking at all of these things just as weaknesses. Like how do we help, mm-hmm. how do we help young people or even adults who have experienced all these ACEs, right? Like four or more ACEs. How do we also look at them from a strengths perspective and highlight the different protective factors they have, the different resiliency factors? Mm-hmm. And so just want to keep that in mind. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we talk about resources and preventing ACEs. But Claire's going to dive a little bit deeper into what does it look like to have been impacted by ACEs? Yeah. So um, Haley provided some helpful kind of information that goes right into this um, as far as like toxic stress and like what the process looks like of um, a young person who's being impacted by ACEs. And so toxic stress is really the big kind of um, process that allows ACEs to get under the skin is how people put it like under the skin in quotations um because I think and you touched on this too Haley like it can be a little bit I don't want to say confusing but it can be a kind of um hard to pinpoint when we're talking about ACEs like okay so we have these adverse childhood experiences that happen and then somehow we go down 20 years and then we have these adults who are predisposed to all these negative health outcomes. Right. Like, okay, w- why? How does that happen? Mm-hmm. Um, and so toxic stress is the answer to that. Um, the adverse childhood experience is the event. The toxic stress that people endure because of the adverse childhood experience is the process that occurs like as a result of the event and is what actually um, causes like these negative outcomes to occur. So when we think about toxic stress, Haley went into like explaining what toxic stress is, um, but it's the stress response that like it, it's what, when we have stress responses, they're generally supposed to be helpful to us. Like mm-hmm. they, they're supposed to help us survive. Um, they're supposed to help us navigate the world and um, mitigate danger. Releases of cortisone. Mm-hmm. Cortisol. Cortisol. Cortisone. Cortisone is like, isn't that a shot or something? I think. Um, <laughs> a I steroid? Think, yeah, it's a steroid. <laughs> you No. Releases of cortisol. <laughs> Enlarged amygdala, right? All of these different things exactly. that happen inside your brain. Yes. Yes. So toxic stress is when the stress response goes from being adaptive or life-saving to maladaptive or health-damaging. Um, there's three types of stress. There's positive stress, which is like the kind of stress that we generally think of, um, if we're not having social determinants or health of health or ACEs as part of the conversation. Positive stress is like a tough test at school or a playoff game or having to speak, like do a speech in front of a lot of people. Positive stress is a physiological response to mild or moderate stressors in our life. So we probably feel like an increased heart rate. We're feeling... Maybe our palms are sweaty or shaky. Um, But with positive stress, homeostasis recovers quickly with us, right? Our bodies can naturally kind of cope and we get back to a place of homeostasis relatively quickly. Tolerable stress is the second kind of stress. Tolerable stress is like it's it's a little bit higher, um, but it's still time limited and we can still recover. So it's an adaptive response to a time limited stressor. So that could be something like um, a natural disaster or unfortunately like maybe you're at a concert and there's like some sort of I don't know 
a lot of things can happen when we're in mass crowds. I don't want to say like a shooting or something because that's a little extreme, well, but like somebody's injured or like, you know, something like that. So that's a tolerable stressor. We, I have a question though. Yes. So, sorry. No. Um, I just, when you say concert though, I like, I can't help um, but think about like the Travis Scott concert and what happened there. Yeah. That was that's such. That's why I said that because that's the first thing that came to mind. So that is such an extreme, like for a lot of people that was really extreme. Like would that still fall under tolerable? Yeah, because the, I mean, when we say tolerable, I think that can be a little bit misleading. And I also think that we have to consider that trauma impacts everybody differently. Right. right. So there's a lot of like, there's a lot of um, things that could like impact the way that somebody experiences that. Um, but generally when we think of tolerable, we're not saying it's not challenging or that it's like not, um, definitely going to have an impact on you. But the idea is that you can, you can tolerate it. Like you can eventually return to homeostasis through some sort of buffering effect, whether that be like a caring adult or like some therapy, Mm -hmm. like something that time limited. Exactly. It's some, it's a stressor that ends. We could think about it as like a big T trauma. Right. Um, Immigration is also like something that can be considered a tolerable stressor. So it could be misleading because when we label them tolerable stressors, we're kind of, I mean, that kind of implies that it's like tolerable and like not a big deal. But when we're thinking about survival, Mm -hmm. tolerable means it's like you will definitely feel stressed and challenged and it's going to be a difficult experience. But the idea is that you're able to recover if you have those protective factors in place and it's time limited. And then there's toxic stress, which is what we've been talking about, which is when our um, adaptive responses become maladaptive because of the fact that it's sustained and it's super intense. So that's something like abuse, neglect, or like household dysfunction. So that's when it's like ongoing. You don't have a chance to return to homeostasis Mm -hmm. because your stressor isn't leaving. It's not ending. It doesn't have like an endpoint in sight. So then we, instead of returning to homeostasis, we stay in allostasis. And allostasis is when basically we're in fight or flight. Our amygdala, like Haley was saying, has taken over. um, And our amygdala is the part of our brain that helps us survive. That's like the fight or flight. Center. Center. I was going to say section. (laughs) Um, And so when we're in allostasis, we're in a chronic stress response. Like our bodies don't don't differentiate between when we're safe and when we're not anymore. Like they're just, we're constantly ready to like, to go and try to survive. And unfortunately, like that's not super uncommon for a lot of young people. And that's why ACEs are so important is because when we think about how ACEs are measured, whether that be, I mean, parental divorce is considered an ACE. Like these aren't things that are super out of the realm of possibility, So when we have these consistent stressors in our lives as young people that a lot of us experience um, to varying degrees, there's a good chance that a lot of us as kiddos are in a constant state of chronic stress and we are in allostasis rather than homeostasis. When we're in allostasis, our bodies, like I said, are just like, they don't know how to tell the difference between when we're safe and when we're not. And our brain is connected to our bodies. I think I was reading... um, It'll be in our in our uh, episode notes, but one of my sources um, was saying that up until pretty recently, like science had kind of thought that the brain wasn't a part of the body's right. immune yeah. response; it was like separate. But now we know that there's um, lymph tissue that connects to the brain, and so when we're in a state of stress and we're in a state of survival to our bodies, they're pumping this like lymph fluid i don't know what it's called (laughs) um 
I think it's like, yeah, but it's like part of our, in our lymph system and it's pumping through our bodies and it goes to our brain. And so our brain is very much a part of that immune response. And when our brain thinks that we're at risk, our brain isn't prioritizing memory or emotional regulation or decision-making, kind of all those things that we associate with like the prefrontal cortex or the hippocampus. Those things are a little bit more like higher executive functioning. Our brains aren't prioritizing that stuff. And so it can really have an effect if we're thinking about a rapidly developing child brain on what pathways are formed. Mm -hmm. And so when our pathways are formed as a child of you need to survive and we're having more, um, as we know, this happens with the brain is pruning. It's like, I think it's neural pruning is what it's called. It's neural pruning. When they go around and trim the, the neurons because we're like, we don't need this. We don't need this. Eventually we have neurons that go away because we're not making those connections as young people of how to regulate our emotions, how to identify a safe space, how to love and trust another person, Mm -hmm. or maybe not how to love that wasn't, but you know, like what a healthy relationship looks like, like all these things. And and I think like attachments, right? Like positive attachments. Like how do you attach to someone? Right. That was a better wording of what I was trying to say. So (laughs) I love, at least you didn't say cortisone. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. We're just, we're going. Yeah. But so anyway, that's that. It, there's just a lot of different things that happen in our brains, and I could talk about it for five hours, but I think the biggest thing that I'm trying to emphasize is that there is a, a neurobiological response that happens from ACEs that is the explanation as to why we're predisposed to these negative health outcomes as adults. It's not just like, oh, there's this loose correlation, like if you experience an ACE as a child, you might be higher risk of heart disease later on like Mm -hmm. our bodies are you know we have biological physiological processes that happen in our bodies as we're when no when we're young people that that really lay the um, foundation for like what we're predisposed to later on right and I think you know when you're thinking about fight or flight so in a situation where you're not in prolonged chronic um stressful situations right where toxic Mm -hmm. stress toxic stress is happening Mm -hmm. a typical right a a kid that is is in experiencing more positive stress right Mm -hmm. is able to when they're able to recover more quickly so like how that might look for a seven-year-old in your class Mm -hmm. who has spent four of his early childhood years or she or they um experiencing abuse or neglect when you go to to maybe chastise them or correct mm-hmm. them on something or their behavior is um, appearing to be what it shouldn't be. Like someone's having poor behavior outcomes. Their response is potentially like their stress response gets activated. Mm-hmm. Whereas another kid's stress response could say like, oh, okay, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Whereas like that kid who's experienced chronic stress and toxic stress their stress response system is so used to getting overactivated yep. that it doesn't know when is right and wrong to activate so things that should not elicit a stress response mm-hmm. end up eliciting a stress response right like the whole idea of this coming this part of our body being like you know when to run away from a bear mm-hmm. and you know that that is a stressful situation and it is there to protect you 
when there's not a bear chasing you Mm -hmm. and there's someone just trying to talk to you, Mm -hmm. your stress response might get activated. And that's where you see things like big behaviors or or anxiety in eight-year-olds or constant worrying, constant worrying, all of these, right, all of these different things. And so keeping that in mind, I think is what, you know, is so important because, and even like, you know, as a social worker, like teaching kids about this, like Mm -hmm. teaching kids about the actual, you know, even though, right, we're talking about stuff with brains and we're talking about medicine, this is still something like you can explain to help kids understand Yeah, that like their stress response system, it's not just like faulty, it was developed wrong. Exactly. and, And their brain, unfortunately, developed in the way that was maladaptive. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And, um, I can't remember where I heard this, but there was this, I think it was a training, but, um, one way to like, that's helpful in understanding is there is this, I don't know, event where these people were trying to, um, get a polar bear that they were studying, like a tag on it. So they mm. could track it. And they were like chasing him with this helicopter. So obviously the polar bear was super, you know, distressed, was running around trying to, like, get away from this helicopter. And eventually they got him and they sedated him and then they were able to tag him and then they left him alone. But um, they were able to, like, have video footage of him once mm-hmm. he woke up just to make sure he was okay. But the helicopter had done it what it needed to do and left. So the stressor left. But the bear woke up from sedation and was still super, mm. like, oh, you know, worked up. He was, like physically like shaking running around like just super um high energy like clearly like the stressor hadn't even left right still in distress still in distress and it took him a while to get back to a state of like his baseline so he was just running around and was like distressed for a good amount of time and so when we think about like the way that our bodies operate a lot of times when we're young people that's what's happening for us is like even when the stressor isn't there in mm-hmm. quotations, like our bodies don't know the difference mm-hmm. because we're just pumping those hormones and we're getting ready to go. Whether that is like needing to run, needing to fight, needing to appease the situation. Right. And so I just thought that that was a helpful way to think about it because sometimes it can be hard when we're conceptualizing all this like fancy stuff to think about what it actually looks like in real life and for young people often it might not look like they're running around like a polar bear trying to get away from something but it might be that they're just you know destroying property or they are shutting down and not communicating with anybody or they hyper vigilant and trying to please everyone exactly yeah it can look different but it's it's detrimental when we think about like our bodies biologically that and we can't see that but when our bodies are in a constant state of trying to survive it it has these effects later on Mm -hmm. also a lot of times like young people as far as like signs of trauma or adverse childhood experiences they will report like physical symptoms whether it's like not being able to sleep well Mm -hmm. um having headaches a lot of times young people have stomach aches a lot Mm -hmm. like if we think about little little kids they'll say my stomach hurts um like frequent infections wetting the bed um and trouble with eating And the frequent infections ones make sense because if we're thinking about, like, our immune response and constantly, um, like, having our body in a state of pumping this, like, lymph through us 
I feel like that would cause us to be more predisposed to infection because we're, our immune response is kind of messed up. Yeah. I mean, you're not in a state of where your body can just heal. I mean, you're in this constant state. So yeah, I really, and the physical signs, right? Like when we're talking about physical signs, I also want to put out there, like if you are in any type of field, like I hope you've gone through mandated reporter training, but also I think that sometimes we forget, um, or there's a lot of confusion about, um, what are signs you look for and things like, yeah, like frequent stomach aches, um, Mm -hmm. sleep disturbances, kids that are sleeping in your class, right? Like, why are they sleeping in your class? Why are they constantly saying they have a tummy ache? Mm -hmm. Um, why is their head always hurting? Right. Um, why do they have poor appetite? Yeah. Things that might be overlooked. Right. And so those are like big things to look for, um, when we're thinking about why is this behavior like this? Like I, if there's anything, it's like, be less quick to judge the behavior and be more inquisitive and try yeah. to figure out what is actually going on. Yeah. Um, I, this is, this is a personal opinion. I, I, <laughs> kids are not inherently bad. Like, well, yeah, you know, kids no. are not inherently bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope all social workers think that, but if you don't, I was going to say that, <laughs> but I, I, you know, know, I've had conversations with people that are not social workers, right? People might say like, that's not true, right? Like, Oh. Kids are born with, like... Well, they might be burnt out. <laughs> that's true. Um, but kids are not inherently bad, right? So, like, when we're seeing these behaviors yeah. or these different things, like, mm-hmm. chances are there has been some sort of stress response. Yeah. Or stressor or traumatic event, whether it's a tolerable one or something that is falls into toxic category. Mm-hmm. So, yes, that is all of the what it looks like. And really, Claire and I could talk about this for like 14 episodes um i think it's also one more thing before we transition it can be hard because it's like all these things could also be other things right and i think that that's like i don't know even in my work i find myself being like am i am i overthinking this Mm -hmm. if somebody you know if i'm assessing a patient and they're talking about like i haven't slept in Mm -hmm. well for as long as i can remember i have poor appetite I feel like I'm constantly on guard. I'm always thinking, of course, like trauma, mm-hmm. ACEs, but it could also be a host of other things, right? And I think also from like a social work perspective, when we're thinking about assessment, we tend to always like the best practice is like rule out a medical condition first. Right. So I just want to like make a note of that, that we also have to, like Haley said, we have to be inquisitive. We have to be like open-minded and explore all possible options, but it is important to come with ACEs as a framework when we're bringing it to the table in assessment because it's definitely relevant, right? Like it's it's a good possibility that that's what's going on, but we also can't be making assumptions and let that kind of, I don't know, cause our assessment to be biased in any sort of way. Right. I think that is a huge piece of it. Um, and I think that's what makes like trauma complicates things it like does. when you're doing assessments like yeah it's so hard sometimes to be able to like distinguish like is this like solely because of something that is like based on trauma mm-hmm. is this something that is neurological mm-hmm. is you know, right like what is the reason for this and and yep. sometimes right like you have to see multiple people and get different like yeah get different assessments and so yeah I think that is I'm glad you said that too um so in our current events section this week, um, we he obviously could talk about COVID um, because we know there has been 
an insane increase in at least the reporting of like yeah. young people with um, mental health struggles right now. Um, it's hard, right, to like research is having a difficult time distinguishing like has this been going on or is it become like coming to the forefront more yeah um but i think really something that i wanted to um talk about is that the um aap american um, academy of pediatrics the american Mm. academy of child and adolescent psychiatry and the children's hospital association um made a declaration of national emergency in child and adolescent mental health in october and so they did this um, because the challenges that are facing children and adolescents are so widespread that we ha- they decided they have to call on poli- policymakers at all levels of government and advocate for children and adolescents to join us in this declaration and advocate for the following. Um, I'm going to go through and read these just because it is policies. And so I think summarizing it, right, I want you to like really know what they are. Um, so what they're trying to do through this declaration is increase federal funding um, dedicated to ensuring all families and children from infancy, infancy through adolescence can access evidence-based mental health screenings, diagnoses, and treatment to appropriately adre- address their mental health needs. Um, and they also wanted to have a particular emphasis on meeting the needs of under-resourced populations. They wanted to also, um, or they are also trying to, address regulatory challenges and improve access to technology um, to assure continued availability of telemedicine to provide mental health care to all populations, right? We've seen a huge increase um, in telehealth as um, an access point for medical through the pandemic. I'd say, like, mm-hmm. if there's one, you know, if, if there's silver lining, um, accessibility yeah. has increased. In some ways, we know, like, it's sh- it's shined a huge light into like how inaccessible so many things have been. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we are all there yet, but I you know it is good to see this written into this. Um, they also want to increase the implementation and sustainable funding of effective models of school-based mental health care. Um, this is huge. This is really yeah. really big. Yeah. Um, we're seeing such an increase um, in mental health in our schools unsurprisingly however the resources that are available inside the school are often slim to none yeah they do Um, not match it at all they do not match i mean you know in washington there are very few districts that have school social workers built into their models Mm -hmm. so then right we're bringing in outside agencies and then those outside agencies are starting up and have four staff for entire districts yep. and it's unsustainable like yeah. this it it is beyond unsustainable and so and this like contract model i think is so it just presents so many problems like i do think it's helpful to have community collaboration and supports being added into schools through contracting but like i don't know it would be maybe this you could speak to this more than i could but that's just my well it's unsustainable i mean yeah it's unsustainable and right. so and you i love more holistic yeah approach. And, and so you bring in these outside agencies and they start working really well um or or they don't right and so then the service isn't guaranteed to the next year because yeah exactly because you have a lot of the times especially when you're starting a one-year contract mm-hmm. and so then what happens if is that then there ends up being no one for a period of time. There might yeah. be someone new who 
the last one was really, really great yeah. and was making good progress. Like, yeah. it's, it is so problematic. And yeah. even... Lots of turnover and stuff. Right. Um, we need sustainable funding um, for school-based mental health please. care. Like, please. Um, <laughs> if, any, if anyone's listening. <laughs> please. Um, and even, you know, we've seen in Washington an increase in school-based um, mental um, school-based medical centers mm-hmm. um but that still is very new and very yeah. few and far between like there's one in the, my old district there's one in the district i'm going to um for the entire district right mm-hmm. so like that again goes to accessibility yeah so many problems um so they also wanted to um strengthen emerging efforts to reduce the risk of suicide in children and adolescents through prevention programs at school primary care and community settings mm. Um, which also, again, right, is super needed. Um, Address the ongoing challenges of the acute care needs of children and adolescents, including shortage of beds and emergency room boarding by expanding access to step-down programs for inpatient units, short-stay stabilization units, and community-based response teams. Mm -hmm. Um, I could go on about this one for a long time. I was going to say, community-based response teams, please. We need them so bad. I mean, in just, like, every area. Yes. We need them. Yes. Um, fully fund, comprehensive, community-based systems of care that connect families in need of behavioral health services and supports for their children with evidence-based interventions in their home, community, or school. Wow. Um, I think this is really big, too. And I think because right now what ends up happening and what is happening is that a lot of organizations – and governments are getting COVID money. Yep. And so you, you're you seeing all sorts of programs emerge and contracts emerge with these COVID dollars. Yeah. And these COVID dollars are going to go away. Mm-hmm. And then what happens? Like, yeah. And so that's why, you know, we're using this as a current topic because I think this is coming at the perfect time um, where we really need to be advocating for policies while we still are still unfortunately like in this pandemic and we still have COVID dollars rolling in so that there's not a gap um in services yeah um and so then promote and pay for trauma-informed care services that support relational health and family resilience accelerate strategies to address long-standing workforce challenges in child mental health including innovative training programs loan repayment and intensified effort to recruit underrepresented populations into mental health professions as well as attention to the impact of the public health crisis impact that the public health crisis has had on the well-being of health professionals yeah um we know that social work is overran by white women (laughs) so i think right if we're we're targeting putting these things into policy again huge yeah. Um, and then the last one is advanced policies that ensure compliance and enforcement of mental health parity laws, which I'm going to say it again. Super important. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. so yeah, this just came out. Let me see. I got this email recently, this, October. Yeah. I actually got this one on the third. Um, it oh. came out in our November 2nd newsletter, um, from an agency in our area but the it was declared in october right yeah the crisis october the crisis. 19th 2021 thanks um and so right we just spent this entire episode talking about aces and 
like child mental health. And so if you're someone who's interested in policy or advocating, like start looking into these things because there are big things that are, that people yeah. are trying to do mm-hmm. to address this yeah. um, in our communities. So again, you know, there's a lot of things going on and yeah. I would just pay attention and look up like what is going on and how can you advocate what's going on in your community? What is your community doing to pull together um, to serve the mental health needs of the youth in your community? Yeah, I feel like that also goes into what we spoke about um, last time with Zoe and like just the role of social workers, but just also mental health professionals in general as um, advocates and, Mm -hmm. you know, lobbyists and trying to work in the broader kind of policy arena to bring in the necessary resources and support because I, you know, we often talk about like ACEs or trauma um, as these things that are addressed in the clinical setting um, and kind of doing like micro interventions. And that's super important. Uh, but that there's like this other piece that coincides so heavily, which is like, what is the cultural and like economic and political kind of like sphere that mm-hmm. overarches our clinical interventions? And like, where are the funding streams going? Who is advocating for you know system reform and um, increased access to programs and resources to address this public health concern Um, because as we know like crisis and I guess in this world pandemics um, are not a one-size-fits-all situation they just simply compound on factors and disparities that already exist so when we're thinking about our folks who have those high ACE scores, we know that COVID has hit them the hardest because of cultural, socioeconomic things that right. already have existed for them for a long time. So as we were saying, I, I really would argue that like these things have always existed. I don't think that's a secret, but that COVID just exacerbated them and manifested these to an extreme. And now people are like, oh, we probably should deal with this. Right. Right. And I think that social workers play a role in this, even if yeah. you're a direct service provider. Because we've been working in this for a long time in this mm-hmm. system. I mean, maybe not you and I, but, like, social workers as right. the we. Um, yeah, and I think that oftentimes, like, if we're in direct services, um, you have the knowledge of, like, what where systems um, are failing, where systems yes. need reform, where systems need to be torn down. And so being able to advocate for those policies and advocate for what needs to happen from a direct service lens is so beneficial. Yeah. And someone someone told me last week, um, systems aren't broken. Systems were designed this way. Oh, yeah. And so it's just like, you know, this idea of what is our role as social workers? Like, I know we are so burnt out and like thinking about policy and reform probably isn't what we're thinking about every day. But if we can increase access if we can increase funding if we can have policies that support our direct practice work Mm -hmm. you know the rest comes with it yeah and hopefully reducing the you know level of crisis and need that we currently are working within because it's certainly not sustainable I know I um was like talking to another person on my team at work 
uh, over the past week and we were joking like the goal is that social workers shouldn't exist right <laughs> like we want to be out of a job we don't you know that's the goal and it's like I don't know not to be flippant but like that is you know when we think about the larger scheme of things we don't want to be in this kind of environment where we're like needed to an extreme that we can't meet dealing with a new suicidal young person every day like that is not what we want to be doing right like it is our job but it is unsustainable for our clients oh yeah you know it's like the you know the experience of COVID in itself right is is getting added into like this like idea of chronic stress and and toxic stress and so like at this point Everyone has experienced it, and then we have to think about, like, who, like you were saying, like, who has it been exact, like, who has been exacerbated Mm -hmm. through this? Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, that's my spiel on policy for the week. Um, And we also, this is the last thing I'll say, we can't be, like, we cannot be delivering sustainable clinical interventions when we're working within a system that is currently operating how it is right now. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like you and I can agree that we, the majority of our work right now is, like, clinical crisis intervention like safety planning keeping a lot of our young people just from taking the step of completing suicide that is like the majority of what we are doing right now and that is not a sustainable or meaningful like it's it's meaningful in the moment but when we're thinking about long term Mm -hmm. we don't even get to the point clinically of when we're able to like engage with our young people about how to thrive and how to learn new better strategies because they're a little like their brains are not in the state right now of learning new strategies. I've done nor should they be expected to be. But I've done more safety plans and suicide evals this year than I've ever done. Yeah, in any of my practice. Mm-hmm. Like I, and it's not just us. If you if we right. talk to the older you know people that we work underneath, right. they'd say the same thing. It's not just because we're new social workers. It's mm-hmm. because of the environment mm-hmm. that we're all in right now. Yeah, so. I mean, I was talking to my supervisor about it yesterday, and you know he is someone that I, like, look up to so much as a school social worker. I mean, he has taught me so much. And, you know, he was telling me, like, this is more than I've ever had to handle. Like, mm-hmm. and I I had the thought, you know, a week ago of, like, can I do direct service anymore? And he, mm-hmm. and he was saying, like, that's not a thought he ever thought he would have. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I don't want to downplay, you know, what – the client, like the people we're serving are going through. Um, but also we do need to, we need to pay attention to like the sustainability and how like the systems affect us as social workers, Mm -hmm. as mental health providers. Um, it is taxing. Like we, you know, if we, if we relate this back to our burnout episode, like even more so, um, from two weeks ago when we recorded, like the compassion fatigue I have felt, like the amount even in two weeks of, like, mm-hmm. suicide assessments I've done and crisis yeah. intervention. Yeah. You know, we're getting close to the holidays. And so, oh, like, yeah. that... It always amps up. It, it, like, that alone, like, you know, there's just so much still going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I just, like, my one last thing is please be att- paying attention to, like, policies that are coming out right now and, like, advocating um, because we need to ensure that, like, when this shitstorm ends, mm-hmm. that we've done like what we can to make sure that we can transition out of this and start moving towards what does it look like to not be in survival mode? Yeah. So. Agreed. So with that, 
big dose of <laughs> happiness and <laughs> happiness. Hope. We're going to bring some happiness and hope and talk about resources. Um, so we're going to talk about how ACEs are preventable. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, I'd say, like, subjective, right? Yes. You know, they are preventable. Um, but for a young person, right, like, you, they're not always preventable for a young person, right? Like, no. we... It's like they are, but they aren't. Yeah. I think it also is like you have to, there's a lot of um, groundwork that comes along with being able to say that ACEs are preventable. Like there's a lot of system reform that's going to need to happen until we can confidently say like, yes, these things are preventable. Right. So, but I'm going to go over protective factors. Um, so first we'll start with like, I won't go through all of these. Um, I'll go through some of the maybe more tangible or pertinent ones. So at an individual and family um, level for protective factors, um, families who create safe, stable, and nurturing relationships, meaning children have a consistent family life where they're safe, taken care of, and supportive, like that is a protective factor. Um, We know that this is not um, easy. It's not always easy, even if you are a parent who has really been trying to do well, like throughout this entire pandemic, um, this is not always easy, but it no. is a protective factor. It is a major protective factor. Mm-hmm. Um, families with strong social po- support networks and positive r- relationships with the people around them, that's a protective factor. Um, families where caregivers and adults work through conflicts peacefully, families that engage in fun, positive activities together, families that encourage the importance of school for children, all of those are different protective factors. Um, And then for community protective factors, um, communities where families have access to economic and financial help is a protective factor. Mm -hmm. Um, Communities with access to state to safe and stable housing. I'm not going to even like (laughs) go on about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, this comes back to systems and Mm -hmm. like this is very great to say. Um, Yeah, but. Yeah, that's, I'm just, I'm going to say, it's a protective factor. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully your communities are working to ensure that. Um, communities where families have access to nurturing and safe childcare, like, and I'm just, like, as I'm reading these, like, I just really want to touch on the idea that, like, from, like, a very white systems perspective, mm-hmm. like, these are what are on the CDC. Um, like, these are great in thought, but, like, what, how are we providing this? Like, what, what is the community doing to provide this? Um, right. Yeah. Um, communities where residents feel connected to each other and involved in the community. Um, communities with strong partnerships between community, business, healthcare, government, and other sectors. All of those are different protective factors. Um, and so then just think, you know, touching back on ACEs don't have a single cause. They can take several different forms. Mm-hmm. Um Many fam- factors contrib- contribute to ACEs, including personal traits, experiences, par- parents, family environment, the community in itself. To prevent ACEs and protect children from neglect, abuse, and violence, it's essential to address all these different factors. Yep. Um, and so I think, you know, as social workers, um, it's our role to be able to identify, like, what is this child, what is this adult's protective factor, like, what protective factors did they have, and really keying in on you know, even having one or two of these, right, can outweigh 
sometimes the risk factor. So I think, you know, when you're doing these assessments, like always assess for protective factors, like ask them, like, you know, did you have anything? Was there anything in your mm-hmm. life and through your exposures was there someone you were close to in school was there a teacher yep. was there an auntie that like always had your back and made sure like all of these different things yeah um like really um get to know your clients and their strengths um yep while also you know assessing for risk factors i think also it just speaks to the importance when we're talking about resources and kind of what you can do or action steps like engaging in community level um government and uh advocacy because we talk a lot about like the larger system systemic mm-hmm. problems but um like community connected connectedness right connectedness connectedness yeah that's a word is like one of the biggest protective factors you can have at community level um engagement and connectedness so even if it's like we can't change specific things happening within a home if there's a safe place young people can go or safe people they can talk to that is usually all the difference so and that's something that like individuals can do and engage with in their own communities mm-hmm. um and so like strengthening economic supports for families like what is our role in whether we are doing it like making sure that the family is connected to the community mm-hmm. is there someone else that can help them like strengthen their economic supports that is like a way to prevent aces yeah um Teaching skills to help parents and youth handle stress, manage emotions, and tackle everyday challenges, right? So, like, if you are dealing with a young person who is ha- is exposed to different toxic stress, like, um, like looking at it from a family systems perspective mm-hmm. of, like, what is the family struggling with? Like, maybe we also need to be helping, like, you know, if it's part of your role, like... Like what Zoe was talking about last week, right? Like she she works with all the different family yep. system levels. And so like sometimes that's like also helping to teach parents um, yeah. how to do these things. Because if you don't have the skills, then you're passing those skills like um, unknowingly, you know, or not intentionally passing those down to your children. Like sometimes we, we do need to like look at this from a person environment lens. We need to look at this from a family systems lens. Yeah. Um, and helping to connect them to caring adults and activities, right? Like helping to get a kid involved in a club at school, helping them, you know, if mom is working late hours because dad is incarcerated or whatever, right? Yeah. Helping that youth to get connected in other ways, Mm -hmm. um, to help support them from a holistic perspective. So, yeah. So that was a lot. Um, I know Claire and I are just looking at each other like we got to wrap up um, because we really could sit here and make 40 episodes about this. We say that with everything <laughs> we talk about. I know, but I feel like that's tr- that's true. The but thing is, we do take these large scale issues and then try to talk about them in an hour. In an hour. Yeah. Which is difficult. So. Right. Uh, so with that being said, um, take, you know, we gave you a lot of information, but how do you take this information, um, put it back into practice. How do you, um, spread this knowledge, uh, all those things I, you know, we just hope that you're thinking about as we do these big high level topic episodes. Um, but as always, thank you all for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We also are getting close to recruiting for new guests. So if you are someone who is a listener who hasn't come on, or if you know someone who you think 
would be good. You know, we always are looking for folks that want to share their lived experience and um, giving them an outlet for that. Or if you are someone who is in the field and want to come in on and speak to us, you can always send us an email at facilitatingvoices at gmail.com or reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, also, always feel free to give us a like and subscribe. <laughs> I never say that because it sounds weird, but uh, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> thanks. Going out of my comfort zone. So stay tuned in weeks to come for discussions surrounding other sensitive issues. There's a wild times and Claire and I want to continue to highlight the work and experiences of all y'all wonderful folks. We have some great clinicians coming on in the coming weeks to talk about more about youth mental health and their experiences. Um, but until next time, I'm Haley Crow. And I'm Claire Alexo. And remember, every person deserves an outlet. <laughs>